by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. You ever seen one of those big, deep-diving bass lures? Those big old hefty ones that dig way down when you're reeling them in. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And they got these razor sharp treble hooks jangling from the bottom. You ever seen one of those really up close? My brother Heath has. And he often tells that story on me. But he's not here today. So I'm going to tell the story. (laughs) Tell my side of it. We were fishing with my dad in Lake Whittington down in Mississippi. And uh, we got to our fishing hole, and when Dad got up from running the motor, he went to sit in the front, you know, and, and run the trolling motor. Well, me and Heath knew that was whoever got to that back seat first got to sit on the real chair, and the other one was resigned to sitting in the cooler in the middle of the boat the rest of the day. And I'm telling you, with them big deep-diving bass lures slinging all around, that's not a good place to be in the middle of the boat. But since I'm six years older than my brother, uh, he probably got there first, but I still slung him over to the cooler. Got to sit in the back seat, you know. And so we we started fishing, and our fishing generally went like this. Dad would try to hurry up and fish a stump before we'd get t- tangled up in it, you know. <laughs> he'd try to fish it, and then he'd have to troll us over and poke our lures loose because we were just throwing them all over the place, you know. And, and he would get mad at us every time we'd go fishing. Can you guys stop throwing it up in the trees? What are you fishing for, squirrels, you know, and... And he would stay mad at us, and I'd be back there pouting because, and I'd get angry at him getting mad at us. Well, at one point, I got angry at him getting mad at us, and I took my pole, and I was just going to sling it off the back of the boat just to make an angry cast, just to show my disgust. And so I reared back, and I went to, and my pole broke in the middle, and it was stuck. And I was just about to try to cast it again when I heard this moan coming from the middle of the boat. And I looked back. And that big deep diving bass lure was hanging off my brother's eye. And about that time, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my daddy leaping across that, that cooler with the boat paddle raised in the cock position. <laughs> he, he raised a knot on my noggin before I could even laugh at poor Heath sitting there with that <laughs> dangling bass fishing lure off his eye. <sighs> so after that, I'm pouting now. You got to understand, I was probably about 13, 14 years old. He didn't, daddy done raise a knot on my head. We raise a hallelujah in here. He raises knots, and when we go fishing. <clears throat> so, so I'm sitting there, and I'm pouting. I put my fishing rod, I ain't fishing no more. You know how you do. And I think I'm just doing a service to all the mistreated kids around the world. I'm just putting on the biggest pout you've ever seen in your life. And Dad, meanwhile, he's mad, you know, and he's still fishing. He's glad I'm putting my, my rod down. Maybe he may get a little fishing. And then he tried to get into a little tight spot. Now, my dad was probably the best bass fisherman I've ever seen. But even he can make a mistake, and he caught a low-hanging limb. Well, being mad already, he's trying to break it loose, you know. 
It won't come loose. And he started saying some words that I won't repeat. And then the most perfect thing happened. That limb broke. And that big bass diving lure started whistling back towards the boat at supersonic speed. And my brother Heath says, he's described it. He said, I saw it in slow motion. It was And it was coming right back at the boat. And it landed with a thud in the boat. Guess where? In Heath's other eye. I grabbed the paddle like I was going to want my daddy. <laughs> of course, I didn't do it, but. That day, we became accidental fishers of men. (laughs) But Jesus has a better plan. In Matthew 4, 19, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's got to turn out better than our trip did. In the words, follow me, I don't know, I'm not a scholar, but that would indicate that Jesus is leading, right? If he says, follow me, that means he's in the lead. And a lot of us live our Christian lives like Jesus is like our personal assistant or something. We only call on him when we need something, when we get ourselves in trouble, or we won't, we may throw out a a wishful prayer about him helping us to get to where our destination is. Because we want him to follow behind us and just to bless us. To bless our mess, right? But a follower of Christ follows Jesus. Now if I ask you, are you a follower of Christ? And you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. You said the prayer and you asked him into your heart. Most of us would want to think that we are followers of Christ. But the question is, are you a follower of Christ just because you said a prayer and you come to Sunday's service occasionally? Does that qualify from being a follower of Christ? Because many of our lives are segmented into, well, Monday through Saturday I do my thing, but, but I go to church on Sunday. And we don't stop and take time to consider what Jesus would want us to do. We're not really following We're doing our own thing and claiming to follow Jesus. And what we're going to talk about today is the difference in being a Christian and being a disciple. Amen? I mean, even the devils believe and tremble, okay? Is believing in Jesus make you a follower of Jesus? In John 12, 26, Jesus says, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. Where do you suppose Jesus is? Well, right now he's in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, right? His spirit is in our hearts. But if Jesus was here physically and he he was a member of the Passion Church, where do you suppose Jesus would be? Think about it. If he was here, he would be here this morning, right? He is here this morning. But I'm talking about if he was here in the natural, I believe he would be at church. 
And then when we have our prayer services on Tuesday nights, where do you think Jesus would be? When we have our next level Wednesday service at 7 p.m., where do you suppose Jesus would be? What about Monday nights when we go to the South Park Apartments and we minister to the little children? He'd be there. I know he'd be there. When we go to the nursing homes on the third uh, Sunday of each month, you, you suppose he'd care about enough to be there with them? What about when we go to youth villages on the fourth Saturday? He'd be there. I think he'd, he would actually, those are the kind of places he would be. And it says right here, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. It ain't about Jesus being where you want to be. It's about us following Jesus to where he is. Is that making any sense? Or is that just too simplistic? Y'all got that? Cool. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Ouch. Take up your cross. Ouch. And follow me. That seems like it requires a little more than most of the people in the American church are willing to give. So we have formed our own form of Christianity here in America, it seems like. But it's in this taking up your cross. It's in this following him. It's in this putting down of myself and saying, you know what? His plans are going to lead me to a better place than my plans. What he asks of me, I will do. Because I confessed him as Lord. And we miss that in the American church. We, we don't understand the term Lord because we don't use it here other than when it's associated with Jesus. But Lord means the boss. He's paid the cost to be the boss. He is Lord. And we confessed him as Lord meant, meant that we will follow him. And in this lordship, in this following, is where we get to the I will make you. He says, come follow me. I will make you. But if you don't follow, he can't make you. Or he won't make you. Is that making sense? Come. Follow me. And I will make you. That's where you become sanctified. That's where the sanctification process begins. We talked about that big sanctification word, which just means that the process that begins at your new birth, your, your salvation, where you become like Jesus. You begin to, to, to follow him. You begin to learn of him. You begin to emulate him. You become, become like him. You begin to share in his sufferings, share in his glory. You begin to, to make your life a, an image of Jesus. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, are we different now than we were before we met Jesus? Because we have a rash of people who say that prayer, but nothing ever really changes in their life. And they are the same, and they are still really sitting on the throne of their life. They still make the calls. They don't consult him about big decisions or any decisions. They only call on him like he's a magic genie 
when they need help. Is that really being a disciple or a follower of Jesus? You might say, well, there was 12 disciples that walked with Jesus, and I saw they did all kind of stupid things. They were knuckleheads. They argued on who was going to be the greatest. They had pride. They wanted to call down fire from heaven. They deserted Jesus in his time of need, and you would be correct. But the thing about that is they didn't stop walking with him. And as they walked with him, they walked it on out till they got filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then you see their lives radically begin to change. I'm telling you, maybe you want to be like Jesus, but you don't have the power because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the power of God that he sent here so that we wouldn't be alone, so that we wouldn't be helpless and hopeless. He sends his Spirit into our heart crying, Daddy's for me. Abba, Father. And so they walked it out. They kept walking it out till they got filled with the Holy Spirit. They made mistakes, but there was, they, they were radically changed. And, it, and it's really amazing to see a, a, a society today that claims to be a Christian society, but is not radically different than the world in which they live. Say amen or oh me. Now, none of us are going to be like Jesus overnight, but we should see some movement in the right direction, right? There should be a process going on. I wrote this. Lasting change comes through a heart impacted by a personal relationship. Let me say that again. Lasting change, the kind that you want, the kind that's going to make you a different person comes through a heart impacted by a personal relationship. See, discipleship is relational more than informational. Jesus wants to make disciples. He doesn't just want to make scholars. There's a difference in knowing about God and knowing God. Do you understand? Jesus is a relational person. He put all these people in our lives. He gave his brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, mamas, daddies, children, so that we would develop relationships. He, he uses relationships to show our relationship to him. He says it's like a marriage covenant. A man should love his wife like Christ loved the church. He's all about relationships. He puts us in the middle of a family, and then he wants a relationship with us. That is what it's all about is the relationship. Not that you just have more knowledge. Christianity is not behavioral modification brought about by a transfer of info. Say that again? I have to read it again. Christianity is not behavioral modification brought about by a transfer of info. It's not just... You could get that from going to a meeting, a TED Talk or something. You know, you try to gin up enough willpower to become something different because somebody inspired you with some words. No, Jesus didn't die for us just to fill our head with biblical facts. And that's where the church is today. Everybody comes to church just to get more knowledge. They go to, uh, what do you call it, when you go to out-of-town events, uh, conferences. Big word, I, it's just come to me. Okay. 
They go to conferences and they, they, they follow preachers around and they're gaining to themselves more and more knowledge about the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with biblical knowledge. But if you just got biblical knowledge and you're not put it in action, you can get puffed up with knowledge. You got to be doing what you know to do. You got to get it out. You got to operate. You got to be doers of the word. And it seems like in America we have a lot of people thinking just the knowledge by itself is what is what makes them spiritual. Eh. Eh. <laughs> Jesus didn't die for us just to fill our head with biblical facts. Jesus came to radically change our direction and our intentions. He came for radical change. Jesus was a radical person here on the earth. People either loved him or they hated him. But he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's a radical statement. We don't even conceive. When he said that, they must have looked at him like, what? What does he even mean by that? Fishers of men. That don't make sense. I've never even heard that term. That's radical. But see, Jesus is radical. And if your life is not radical for Jesus, then, wow, you must not know him very much. Because if you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be radical. We're supposed to be a peculiar people. We're not ashamed to lift our hands in worship. We're not ashamed of the name of the Lord Jesus. We're not like this world. I'm preaching real good again. There are many noble pursuits in life. Raising your children. Providing for your family, right? Using the gifts and callings that God has given you. There's a lot of noble things that you can be doing in life. And I'm sure you all are pursuing noble things, right? But underlying whatever noble acts that we are to commit in our life should be two things. The desire to love and the desire to fish. And I just saw 10 men elbowing their wives. See, I told you we should have got that boat. <laughs> See, pastor said we're supposed to fish. Wives just look at him and say, he means fishers of men. Which may or may not involve a boat. I think it does. I think, I think we should get a boat. <laughs> Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. I love y'all. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm silly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're talking about a radical passage of Scripture right here. Verse 15. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. There it is again. Oh, we can't get away from it, can we? Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought it's Christ from a merely human point of view. How differently we know him now. I mean, we saw him, in, those guys that saw him in the natural, they, they, they said, yeah, this, he's awesome and everything, but 
But when they saw him raised from the dead, when they saw him ascend into heaven, when they saw him seated at the right hand of God, when they saw him in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they realized that he is the creator of heaven and the earth, when they realized that he spoke and the stars flung into existence, when they realized that we live and move and breathe and have our existence by him, when we realized that he's the great I am, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of glory, when we realized that he's the Rose of Sharon, when we realized that he is all and in all, and it is all that you will ever need. He's the wonderful counselor, a mighty God. When you realize who Jesus is, we can't see him just as a, from a merely uh, human point of view anymore. And when you begin to see yourself with his spirit in you, are we still just to act as mere mortals, Paul says? Do I still have to feed you with milk and, and like you're a baby? Or do we grow up into the things that God wants to do through us. No, you're not God's, but God does live in you. And He wants to work through you. All right. Where was I at? How differently we know Him now. 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Not just a patched up old person that tries to do a little better on Sunday. But a real new creation in Christ Jesus. The old life is gone. And it's a totally new life that has begun. And all of this is a gift from God. Who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the t this task of reconciling people to himself. So he brought us back. And then he challenges us to bring other people back to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so that we would go tell somebody. So that we could help other people see the radical thought that God is not holding our sins against us. What? I've been in church a long time. I ain't never heard that. That God's not, well, What does the Bible say? No longer counting people's sins against them. People don't go to hell because of their sin. They go to hell because they reject their salvation. The sin debt is already wiped away when he said it is finished. Now, do we still sin? Yes, but we have forgiveness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And people out there trying to be good apart from Jesus, thinking they're going to go to heaven. And Christians judging themselves. Well, I think I'm going to heaven. Well, then, then you're really not a Christian because you don't have your faith in the cross. Unless you have your faith in Jesus, you got your faith in yourself. We really need to be serious about what we believe. Jesus is the way. He is the door. No man enters except through him. And if you got your faith in how good you are, and you're, you're beating yourself up about how bad you are, if you would just come to Christ, and you would begin to put your faith in what he did on the cross, he's the one paid your sin debt. Make him the Lord of your life and follow him then things would change. But if you're going to try to do it yourself, then you're still doing it in your own self's power. 
And you, have, you do not have the power to overcome sin without Christ. I'm preaching real good again. I got to pat myself on the back because I ain't getting no amens. No, I'm just kidding. So, so we are Christ's ambassadors. An ambassador is someone sent from one country to another country to represent the country that they came from. We're no longer earthlings. We are, from this, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we're on this earth as ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. And God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we say, come back to God. Look, it's not about your good works. It's about what Christ did on the cross. Come back to God, to the relationship with God. St. Fishers of men. Jesus gave us two greats. The great commandment to love and the great commission to love enough to go. The great commandment to love the Lord your God and the great commission is to love your neighbor as yourself and to love them enough to go and be an ambassador and bring the message of reconciliation that you can be right with God. That has to be underlying in all these noble tasks that we undertake in our life. Everything that, that may be good things that you're doing, you're holding your job, you're doing these things, but you're, you're, you're departmentalizing in your mind that my job is this, but then I go to church on Sunday. But no, everything you do, do as if unto the Lord. Everything in your life is as fun to Jesus. Then you will begin to see people with a heart of compassion, your co-workers, then, you, then the Holy Spirit will say, hey, he's got love in his heart. I'll use him. I'll give him the words to say. Message of reconciliation. The Great Commission was the last thing Jesus told us before he ascended into heaven. Now, you know the last thing that people say typically is the most important thing that they have to say left. You always want to hear, well, what did they say? What was their last words? Because you know it's probably the most important thing they had on their mind. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, you notice he didn't say, therefore, go and get everybody converted to Christianity. And I think a lot of people think that's what it means. Just go and tell them about Jesus and that's enough. Leave them there. You know, they'll figure the rest out. But a disciple is something different than just a Christian, and I'm going to explain that a little bit more. What, what is a disciple? What would you say? Somebody yell it out. What's your first? Disciplined follower. That's the one I hear most often. You say a follower of Jesus. Now, notice both of those use the term what? Follow. See, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross, unless you follow me. You can sit on the mountainside and I can preach to you and you can hear me and you can believe in me, but you cannot be my disciple unless you take that next step to go with me. You left your nets, you left your boat, and now you're a follower of Christ. That's a big difference. And Jesus didn't say go and tell everybody about me so we can all feel good about ourselves. He said go and make disciples. That's a deeper process than just getting people saved. And a bigger responsibility. 
And if you look at this banner here, this is, this is what we're supposed to be doing as our church. The Lord showed us. We're here to develop Jesus' heart in you. It's what we do. We each come and learn that we may go and teach, making true disciples who will take up their cross and do what? Follow the Lord. And if you're sitting here today and you're feeling bad, well, he's talking about me because I just come to church every now and then. And I don't even really think about Jesus the rest of the time. and I, He's kind of hurt, hurt my feelings. Well, don't let it hurt your feelings. Let it stir you to action. It's for you. This more, this more abundant life that Jesus said I came to give you, it's for you. The reason I'm saying it is because he's calling you to that. And that's how he does it. He's stirring in you a passion to go deeper. A disciplined follower. That's how we describe what we're doing here is making disciples. If you had a baby, you brought a baby into the world and you cut the cord, you set it on the table, would you say, well, all right, I've done my job, and walk off? Carve a notch on your belt, I, I brought a baby into the world, or I got somebody saved, and you walk off, and you leave that little baby just sitting there. It, that baby don't know how to fend for itself. That baby's going to need feeding. That baby's going to need burping, <laughs> teaching, training, love, and a lot of patience. Sound like I'm talking about baby Christians too, don't it? A lot of patience. They're going to need hands-on attention that's only found in a loving relationship. Just like a baby Christian. That's what the babies are going to need. In Psalms 127, verse 3, it says, Children are a gift from the Lord. We're talking about children. They are a reward from Him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in his, a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. So you didn't leave your baby just sitting on the counter. You nurtured that baby. You grew him, or him or her, and you taught them, and, and you showed them the right way to live and how to make good decisions and stuff. And when they grew up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they didn't depart from the way. And now they bring you honor, and they're a help to your family, right? I wish we could all say that. I wish we could go back and know that now, you know, know that then. But it, in some degree you did. In some degree you tried to raise your children right. You did the best you could with what you knew to do, right? And that's what God wants to do with his children. Can I read this same scripture in light of God's children? I'm just going to take liberty. I'm not, this is not the Bible, but this is the way I, I'm, I'm proposing that we read it. Children are a gift to the Lord. I'm talking about new children of God. They are a gift to the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man or children born to God are like arrows in a warrior's hand. What, what does a warrior do with an arrow? He points it in a direction, shoots it where he wants it to go because his children obey his voice and go where he tells them to go. How joyful is God because his quiver is full of them. It brings joy to, to God to see more children. He will not be put to shame 
when he confronts his accusers at this city gate. Who is the accuser of the brethren? It's the devil. He's at the city gate. And the question we got to ask is, are we raising up children that are bringing glory to God? Or do they have a bumper sticker with a fish on it, but then telling everyone they're number one as they ride around town with road rage? You know, it's just an example, but are God's children bringing him glory? Are they bringing him embarrassment? We have an obligation to, to make sure that the children we raise are bringing glory to God. The new believers, we have an obligation to disciple them and to help them to walk in the way of God. Not that we're supposed to all be cookie-cutter Christians and be the same, but that we're all supposed to be discovering who God made us to be. And to be the best version of us so that we can use the gifts and talents God gave us to bring him glory. I'm pre preaching too long. Let me slow down. Paul referred to those that he discipled as his children. The Apostle Paul. This was a busy man. I mean, you read the, the scriptures and you see the amount of things that he did. It's incredible. But he still took time to raise up young men into the ministry like Timothy called him his son, and he, and he cared for the churches, and he, he wrote them letters. That's the letters that we read today, like the crazy church in Corinth, you know. They were doing everything wrong, but he was working with them. He was training them how to, to do church right. And in 3 John verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. See, he called them his children. He took responsibility for other new believers. Do you do that in any, any kind of way? Or are you still just, you've been saved for 14 years, but you still feel like a new believer because you haven't matured? Am I stepping on toes today? Do you have anyone in your life that you feel like is a spiritual child that you are mentoring? Is there someone in here that you're pouring out? You say, well, I'm not qualified. I've done everything wrong. Well, then you know what to tell them not to do. Everybody is qualified to share what you know. And if you don't have a lot of biblical knowledge, buy a Bible. <laughs> That'd be a good start. Read it and share what you do know. Share your testimony that we talked about. Show the people how to, how to conduct themselves as a child of God. And do you have any spiritual parents? Maybe that's the problem. You haven't allowed anybody in the church to speak into your life. Oh, I'm, I, nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's pride. So allow people to speak into your life. First, you got to have some kind of fellowship with the church, right? You got to spend some time following Christ so you can be around other people who follow him. Jesus gives us a huge family here for us to, to help the younger and to, to learn from the older and more mature. Now, I'm not just talking about an age, but I'm talking about spiritually. And a whole bunch of people to help us share the task. It's called the church. And as a church, this passion church has always been a soul-winning church. Rarely does a week go by that we don't have some salvations that we can rejoice over. And, and I love that about our church. We have always been a going church. But we haven't always 
really concentrated as much as we should on what to do once we make these little babies. On the discipling part. And so, I remember one time, me and my little brother Heath went brim fishing. And uh, my dad wasn't with us. We borrowed my grandpa's boat. And we went to that same lake, and we had a tube of crickets, you know, and we was brim fishing. And they happened to be biting that day, so we fished all day from morning to when we got there early in the morning till dark. We had we caught over 100 brim. And we had the cooler just stacked full, had them all over the place. And we got back home after dark. Now, this is down in the Mississippi Delta where the mosquitoes are bigger than the brim, okay? And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm worn out. The sun done beat me down all day. I didn't have to pull in 50, 60 brim, you know? I certainly didn't feel like getting a knife out and fighting the mosquitoes off with it because <laughs> that'd probably be more doing that than cleaning fish. And, you know, being a teenager at the time, I, I was justifying why I didn't want to do the hard work of cleaning the fish that I had caught. So I said, well, let's just bring them down there to the pond and we'll turn them loose and they'll all grow to big, be big brim and we'll catch them again later. I knew deep down inside that most of them were dead in that cooler. And the, or we're dying. But I justified it, and I brought them down to the pond, and I, we poured them all in that night. And then when we came back the next day to see how they were doing, well, let's just say the raccoons had ate well that night, and most of them were floating. And see, we can't do that. We can't, we can't win souls for Jesus Christ and then just leave those babies to fend for themselves against the raccoons. We have to breathe the breath of life into them and show them and disciple them and be patient with them, burp them, feed them, all those things. They need care. And so we have to care for them. We must facilitate the Holy Spirit's cleaning in their life. It's the Holy Spirit that will really do it, but we have to lead them to the Holy Spirit. We have to lead them to, to say, keep coming. Don't quit on me. Come on, I know it's tough. I know you want to go back to your old ways, but look, God has set you free. You can't go back now. Look, you got, God's got too much for you, and we encourage these young Christians, and we keep working with them, and they're going to make mistakes. They're going to burp and throw up all over the place. You had to clean it up. You're going to change your diapers sometimes. But if we all pitch in, it'll be worth it. They will grow up like mighty arrows in the hand of God, the warrior. And then in the end, we'll all have all these mighty warriors in the church. Then we'll take greater territory for the kingdom of God. What's the main church, uh, purpose of the church? According to what we just read. What is the main purpose of a church? What is the main purpose of Ford Motor Company? To make cars. What is the main purpose of a church? To make disciples. So everything that we do should be wrapped up in our processes and, and, and our ideas of how to make, to get them saved and get them to begin to look like disciples of Jesus Christ. What are we doing to make disciples as a church? Well, for the last five years, God has been dealing with our hearts and he's been, he's been showing us a better way. If you look at any of these banners, we just discussed this one, that's what we do. But look over here. 
At the bottom of it says a fire igniting the passionate pursuit of true purpose in people's lives. We care about everybody. This is a hospital. So we're trying to help people discover their purpose. When they discover their purpose, life begins to take a new meaning. They don't want to go back. We look at this over here. There's this process of, of becoming a disciple back here. You got to first, you got to know God. Then you got to find freedom from all these things that have held you captive. The, the alcoholism, the pornography, and all the things that are sucking you dry and leaving you, leaving you unfulfilled. You got to find freedom from all that bondage. And once you do that, you discover the purpose. And once you discover the purpose, there's nothing stopping you from beginning to make a difference. And so all of us are on that chart somewhere. And once we begin to make a difference, we're helping other people know God. And so then the cycle continues. We're helping other people around the chart, right? I mean, because why? Because we love God and his people and his purposes. And we're genuine, passionate, relevant about it. I never was able to get my words out good. But look, we're developing passionate people, true to our core values, the Bible who will continually expand, they'll get bigger on the inside and they'll reproduce. God is after multiplication. He's after exponential growth in the church. The seed is in us. The ability for this church, this little bitty church in the middle of nowhere, to actually to, to, to become a name synonymous with love, hope, and purpose, and family, and the place to find the real Jesus all over the world is in us. If God is in us, what could stop us? If he could just find, if he just took 12 followers and he turned the world upside down, what could he do with us? That's what I'm trying to get to you today. From our kids' curriculum to our teaching in here, we must stress how to become disciples who are making disciples. That's the, that's the pattern. 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul says, The thing that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Do you see? Paul teaches. They get it. They teach it to others who get it, who will teach it to others. And that's how we begin to grow exponentially. It's not one great service where everybody says, oh, that was good, and go home, and now all of a sudden we're all changed. But it's each one of us doing our part. A, a church should not be dependent on the preacher for growth. I'm just a simple messenger and a servant like you. My job is to stir you up to do the work of the ministry. The question we must ask about our church and about our homes is, are we training God's children to be spiritually mature, fully devoted followers of Christ who will disciple others. The word disciple is in the Bible 270 times. But the word Christian is only in there three times. God is not out to make Christians. I mean, he's not willing that any should perish. But if we're going to save this world and we're going to we're going to really have revival in these end times. we got to make these Christians into true disciples. Jesus preached to the multitudes, but he only walked with 12. And of that 12, he really only spent most of his time with three. And if Jesus couldn't disciple 5,000 people at a time, I know I can't. And people get mad at me all the time because I don't come to their kids' uh, Bar mitzvah or whatever. I mean, it's a, 
birthday parties or, or I, don't, I, don't, I don't do this or I don't visit them at the, everybody at the hospital as often as they think I should. But I'm just one person. It ain't supposed to work like that. It's all of us together pulling the workload. And then there'll be no hurting. Then there'll be nobody left out. And so we got to change the way we're doing some things. This model that America has is one man up in the pulpit sharing his gift with everybody else and everybody else going home saying, well, he did good today, and then that'd be it. That just ain't working. It's not about the transfer of knowledge. It's relationships being built based on the Word of God. Jesus' small group received teaching and then practical application and explanation. See, he, he just taught the multitudes in parables. I thought that was so strange when I saw that. He said, I teach them in, in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not. I was like, Jesus, don't you want them to know? What he wants them to do is have to come to him to know. He don't want them to get it apart from him. But it was those that walked with him that came to him afterwards and said, what did you mean by this? That he got to speak into their lives personally. He got to walk with them day after day. And I, I've said this before, there was only 120 believers in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Where were the other multitudes that he had preached to? It's easy to fall away if you're just hearing a preacher. But if you're walking with Jesus, man, you're going to do what he says. And they were the ones filled with the Holy Ghost. They were the ones that ultimately turned the world upside down. Not the multitudes he preached to, but the disciples he walked with. And we've got a missionary, uh, Van Roseberry's. Uh, by the way, Van and his wife Karen are celebrating 37 years of marriage today. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now that's setting an example for the flock, isn't it? And he's got a brother named Glenn. And he's a missionary in Africa. And I sat and talked with him one afternoon for a couple of hours. He said, man, those little African churches just shake their heads at the American church. He said, y'all are doing it wrong. Y'all used to send missionaries over here. We want to send missionaries over there. They go from house to house. They work on people one at a time. They sit with people. They explain the gospel. They help people mature. He said, you Americans, you come in and you put a big stage up, a huge stage out in the middle of nowhere in this big sound system. And he said, Africans will walk 50 miles to see the spectacle. And there'll be 5 million people in the audience. And you'll get a translator and you'll preach the gospel message. And just like it works everywhere else, it works in Africa. And a million people will come down to the front to give their hearts to Jesus. And it's an awesome thing. But then the Americans take their stage and their sound system and fly back to America and leave all the little babies in the pond with the raccoons. And most of them go back to voodoo or witchcraft or pantheism, multiple gods or whatever they're believing before because they don't know what else to do. No, there's no one there to train them and to teach them. We've got to do better. We used, to, we used to get people saved and we were like embarrassed to invite them to church like we were trying to get something out of it. Like we were more spiritual because we, we were just getting them saved and, and we don't want anything out of it. But no, we want to experience the fruit of our labors. We want them to come here not for our sake, but for their sakes. We lead them to Christ, we need to invite them to church. 
Even if we can't lead them to Christ, we need to invite them to church so they can get saved. I'm preaching the truth to you. I'm telling you what Jesus, we got to do something different. What America is doing is not working. And, I, and God has given us a plan, and I'm going to share that with you in the weeks coming up. We got to be more effective in our fishing. That trip with my dad, well, it wasn't very effective. I mean, we got the lure off of Heath's other eye, but the poor fellow had two black eyes and little cuts all around him. And I thought to myself, what's the moral of that story? Why did I tell that story? I don't know. No, I do know. It's like a, it's like a, a parable for the whole Sermon on the Mount. Come on. I mean, you got the obvious fishers of men story, right? But then... I could commend Heath for turning the other cheek. <laughs> then there's that whole eye for the eye thing. Yeah, I could blast Dad for not taking the limb out of his, his own eye before he walloped me for the speck in Heath's eye. I could mention that it's the rod that drives foolishness out of a child. Not the boat paddle, but of course I'd have to play the fool in that scenario. In all in all, that was a, a very ineffective way to fish. God wants us to show, he wants to show us a better way to fish. How will Jesus grade our effectiveness as a church? Have you thought about that? I know all of you are not members of the Passion Church. You're all welcome to be. And in fact, we're having a a next step class here at 1.30 this afternoon. And that's the next step. If you're interested in more about what we're doing and who we are as a church and you want to get hooked up and, and do some things for God in the end, come to that. 1.30 to 2.30. You can join the church after that meeting if, that, if that's in your heart to do. And we have a next step class here, four different ones, every, every Sunday. That's a next step for you. That's why we do it whether one person shows up or 50 show up. Because we want something for you to do when, you, when God moves on your heart to take another step and you, you've been stirred today to some kind of action, we'll take the next step. We are putting processes in place to take you on this journey, to get you around that wheel. God is going to address our effectiveness at a church, as a church. And I guess I'm going to be held responsible as the as the shepherd of this local congregation. And so I'm trying my best to hear from God and say, God, what can we do to be more effective and not leaving those baby Christians undiscipled? Colossians 1.28, I think, tells us the answer. It says, Him we preach, Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, that word perfect just means fully mature. doesn't mean without fault, but perfect is, is fully mature Christians. That's what we'll be judged as. I mean, winning souls is awesome. What does it say about winning souls? He who wins souls is wise. But also, he who speaks into the life of a new baby Christian is very wise. I'm about to close, I wrote this. Exponential growth 
is possible for a people who come together in unity, seeking God's will. Those things are important. We got to be together on this. We got to be together, and it's got to be God's will. It can't be my will. It can't be your will. It can't be this happened in another church. This other church does it like this. We know God has a will for these people. You look at our banners. Our banners are different. This is what God has shown us. But when the people will come together in unity, seeking God's will, when they align with his heart, you're doing it for the right reason, you have clearly defined his vision, you've written the vision and made it plain, then you implement prayed out and proven processes. See, there's processes to get you to where you want to go. When you're making a Ford, you've got an assembly line. You have to do the right things to come out with a car on the end processes that will always turn out a car. And so we're praying out the processes. This next step class is one of the parts of the process. And I'm about, in the next week or so, going to introduce the biggest process that we've made a change on yet. And I believe it's, it's exactly uh, why God is bringing us to this point. He said in 2018 it would be a year of revelation. I believe it all the way up to 2018 for this new church. It's been revelation. 2019 is a year of implementation. That's when we put the final pieces of the puzzle in place for the processes that he's showing us. And we're about to do that. And then 2020, when Katie bar the door, it's going to be a year of manifestation. We will have the limbs in place to support the weight of the fruit that God is going to send. The structure. We will be in position. God has been building a people, and the devil has been coming against us. Believe it. But how I know that it's coming is because the devil's mad. And the devil isn't, hey, we ain't worried about him. He should be an encouragement. When he see, we see him coming and whispering and, and trying to divide and all those things, well, we just know that we're doing something right. Because the devil ain't fooling with people that ain't doing nothing for the kingdom. And he has no power over us. We're doing a great work. We're not coming down from the wall for all that. We're going to continue to move forward and continue to do what God has for us. And I tell you what, we're going to look back, and I hope you're a part of it. I hope you're a vital part of it. We're going to see the glory of God. We're going to see revival. I'm telling you, we don't do all these things for no reason. There's been a plan all along. When, you're, when, a, when a church is listening to God and they're coming together in unity and they're, they're wanting to do God's will, God will show up and show out. And it's going to happen. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. God wants to use you. He's always wanted to use you. If this isn't your church and, and God sends you to another church or something, he'll use you there. God wants to put you where you fit. He wants to use you to the fullest of your capabilities. He wants you to be a world changer. And it's only going to be done in that relationship with him.
in the context of relationships with him and relationships with one another. God doesn't do anything except that in the context of relationships. He's all about building a people, not a person. He's, he's not about lone rangers. He gave us the church to, to be our avenue so that we would come together, we would unite, and in the, the coming together, there he would be in the midst of us. There his power would be. There the, the exponential growth would happen because we have a, a people who come together. And I want to be part of that group that's in the upper room when Jesus pours out his power on this church. Now, I, like I said, I said some hard things today. If, talking about Sunday-only Christians and stuff. And I was there. And I wish somebody would have hit me between the eyes with the reality that there's more. I didn't even, I thought I was a Christian for the first 32 years of my life, and I wasn't. I believed in God, but he had made no difference in my life. And, and I'm going to ask you today, you may be here and you say, I ain't never even believed in Jesus. But I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to assume that there's something in you that's wanting more. I know it is because it was in me. Something wants more in you. You know that there's more to this life that you haven't lived yet. And you've tried all the, the, the fakes. You've tried all the replicas that the world had to offer, trying to make you, you try to get rich, you try to get famous, you try to do all these things, you tried to see how many uh, sexual conquests you could have, you tried the drugs, the alcohol, you've tried all that, trying to fill that hole. And I'm telling you, it's only found in the relationship with Jesus. He left that hole so that you would seek him out. And perhaps you would find him. And I'm going to tell you, today is the day that you can find him. And you can take that first step you can let Jesus put that hook in your mouth and bring you on into the boat. And then you can, you can allow the Holy Spirit to clean you. And you can live as a follower, a disciple. I'm telling you, it's not entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. It's not the easy life. But it's the exciting life. It's the true life. For it's what you were created to do and to be. And you'll never find that until you go whole hog for Jesus Christ.
listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.